And then like something happened along the way where I was just like, oh, I'm going to shrink myself a bit. But like, don't be afraid to like fully put yourself out there and be yourself and stand out and just be the moment, like be the main character. Attitudes are beginning to change. A stigma surrounding dyslexia. Muddled messages were received the by the brain. Dyslexia will not hold you back. Dyslexic is kind of your superpower. Anything is dyslexia. Dyslexia. Hello, we are Move Beyond Words and welcome back to another episode of our podcast sponsored by Arts Council England. I'm Elizabeth Riffian. And I'm Charlotte Edmonds. Today is part one of a two-part episode with Belonle Tajuddin, curator, educator and founder of Black Blossom School of Art and Culture. We discuss her experience as a young Black artist in London, how she is decolonizing education in the art space and why she believes art can be the ultimate tool for change. Welcome, Belanle Tajuddin, to the Move Beyond Words podcast. Belanle, thanks for joining us today. And we have really enjoyed kind of going through your history and how Black Blossoms came to life. And it's been great to research and, you know, you've done so many really impactful works and working with like such big institutions like Tate Modern, Tate Britain and featured in Vogue, Dazed, you know, just a a few cheeky mic drop moments there. But you know, I, I would be really interested to hear what was your experience of art when you were growing up? Great question. Um, so I'm Nigerian. Um, I attended um, a Pentecostal church with my mum growing up where um, people wear like white garment, ashadura, and some of the garments themselves would have like beautiful embroidery and patterns. And there would also be like a kind of a matching hat. And again, like very similar, it would have some colours in it. So there's the Caribou and Seraphim um, denomination of like the Pentecostal Nigerian church. And so they would have quite a few colours within their white garments. And I guess like, I just used to love the fashion. Like I really, really loved fashion. Like I just love style. I love seeing how people put their gold jewellery together with their like clothes, the nail colours, like makeup, outfits. And I think that kind of visual language was like my first foray into design and culture. And my mom came to my house and said, you know, when your parents come over to yours, you can kind of force them to watch what you want to watch. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like to my mom, okay, we're watching like design shows today. And I was watching a brilliant show on Netflix actually called Made by Design, which um, has a conversation with about... I think it's eight different creatives based between Nigeria, London, America. So we watched that and we watched Made My Home, Make My Home Perfect, which is like a virtual reality architect show. I think I'm, yep, quite attached to that one. (laughs) (laughs) And they've got the garden one as well now. So I'm looking forward to that. That's your weekend. Yeah, I (laughs) do. And um, as we were sitting there, my mum was like, oh my gosh, like, she just got a flashback and she goes, oh, growing up, you used to watch these shows all the time. So I guess for me, it's not necessarily like, oh, I was fascinated by a painting growing up. I just think I'm a visual creative. Like I like design. I like activities that nurture creativity. 
um, whether it directly impacts me or subconsciously, I'm just always drawn to creative practices such as dance as well. So I love, I, I, I'm, I don't consider myself to be one of the best dancers, but I love going to watch dance. I love all forms of dance. I love watching dance on TikTok. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I love watching dance in a theatre. I love dance. So, mm. And then, yeah, I think going into art school, I think that was a big game changer, like going to an arts university. How was it that that came to be? So it was really weird, actually. So... um I graduated, I finished college and I actually got into Leeds University to do politics. So I'd done politics for a year and it was such a big culture shock for me, like leaving London, like leaving ends (laughs) and going to like a very white institution. Not only is Leeds like a white institution, it's like red brick. So it has a lot of push kids there. Do you know what I mean? Kids who've like gone to private schools oh really yeah in Leeds yeah it's got like a really um especially the university so a lot of people say that at the time when I was studying there that it was an institution you go to if you got if you didn't want to go to Oxford and Cambridge Mm. you go to Leeds because you can still have a social life and party and that's what it was like a lot of the kids are extremely clever extremely well connected like parents run like see their CEOs and stuff and like, yeah, it was fun being around, like, people that I hadn't necessarily been around before, but it was also just, I wasn't in London. <laughs> I wasn't around. Yeah, so It was big. like a small black community. It was just very small, though. It was really isolating. I just didn't like it. Like, and I think even what I was studying, I was just like, okay, this really... It just wasn't for me. Mm. So um, I came back to London. I took a gap year, came back to London, and I was like, oh, I've got to get a degree in something. (laughs) And I left it quite late, so I couldn't apply. I probably would have applied for LSC to do, like, international relations or something, but I left it too late in the application process. So I looked on clearing, and there was University of the Arts London and London Met, and they both had, like, very similar advertising courses. And I thought this would be interesting. So when I um, contacted UAL, there was like, look, we don't have any more spaces on our advertising course, but public relations could be interesting. And I thought, okay. I was interested and I thought, okay, if I do PR, I know I can get into politics and or I can get into communication and like do like political campaigning and communications. So, yeah, I studied PR at art school. I studied it at London College of Communication, which then meant I had access to all the other campuses, University mm. of the Arts campuses, which includes um, Central St. Martins, Chelsea College of Art, Camberwell College of Art, Wimbledon, which is now like the performance in, um, arm of UAL, um, and London College of Fashion. So why would you ever have left London? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make sense, does it? I first met you at the Murray Edwards College in Cambridge mm-hmm. at the Visible Women Arts and Gender Conference. And I remember your talk and everyone in the room was so inspired. I think actually you got a clap in the middle of the talk. Everyone's just feeling like really pumped. And you were speaking about Black Blossoms, mm. which is the company that you've founded um, in 2015. Yes. 
It didn't actually become a registered company oh. until last year, though. Ah, that makes all sense because I loved it. Because I think that this is when you started curating workshops online last year. Yes. And I loved your your post, which I'm going to read out as someone with dyslexia, which is going to be fun for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is Black Blossom School of Art is sticking two fingers up at the system while setting a blueprint for inclusive. <laughs> so close, Charlie. So close. Oh no. So rewind. While setting a blueprint for inclusive arts education, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how and why you founded Black Blossoms. So um I guess I had gone through three years of art school or design school um university in um, London College of Communication. And I was kind of, I was really, really active in student politics because I initially, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do politics. And I kind of still thought after I left university, that's what I'd go into. So I was part of the National Union of Students Women's Campaign. I ran for vice president. I was vice president of London College of Communication on behalf of students. Then I became education officer. And I guess during that time, I went through quite a few awakenings about society. So I really started to understand how race and sex um, and gender all impacted like my life as a Black woman and all of these like intersectional intersectional identities. And um, I really needed something for me and my friends to feel safe in. Like, that we didn't constantly have to talk about, like, things that were oppressing us. So this is very much during the rise of, like, the Me Too campaign, Donald Trump. So there was a lot of news, <laughs> like, things happening. Like, the world was really changing and, like, really calling out oppressive behaviours, which is a great thing, but at the same time, this has an impact on all of us individually. And there's not very much. And also it was during the rise of safe spaces that I found Black Blossoms, which is not so popular now. But um, I really wanted to create a safe space for um, Black women and Black non-binary people to get together, to discuss things that oppress them, but to also discuss things that that made them happy and also network so they can advance themselves in their chosen kind of creative careers. So um, Black Blossom started really just as like conferences and talks and very much like internal workshops face-to-face because this was like 2015-16. So we had conferences, meetups, workshops and stuff. And it was really, really fun. And I guess I felt very uncomfortable at that time using or leveraging Black Blossoms as like a company to make money because it was never, it wasn't for that. It wasn't, I didn't want to make money through it, but it did provide a gateway for me to understand that I really wanted to be in the arts because I curated an exhibition under the umbrella of Black Blossoms. And I realised that I was really, really good at curating. I was really good at like working with artists and managing artists. And I loved that. Skip forward, last year during the pandemic, I needed money and I taught um, a course online that I had previously taught at Tate called Art in the Age of Black Girl Magic. And it was really successful. And I thought, oh, okay, so what can I do? Because I can't teach everything. (laughs) And I know some amazing writers, academics, artists, lecturers, who don't necessarily get a chance to share their research in a very, like, open environment. 
And I just thought, okay, this could possibly be the birth of the Black Blossom School of Art and Culture. And I love the art world, but I also love business as well. So I think it's it was a new challenge for me to like start a business, like a proper business through the platform and learn all about education technologies. <laughs> Because it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a it's big a world. <laughs> yeah, it's a very different. We've had our fair share of um, learning experience. Yeah. <laughs> Just a tech world. <laughs> I wouldn't even say like particular technologies, but full on. But also how with your workshops, which are all sold out, by yeah. the way. <laughs> I would promote them, but there's no need. Yeah, um, we don't have any new courses that are out at the moment, but we have a program coming out very soon, which is Ooh, super that's exciting. exciting. And yeah, I don't actually call them workshops. Oh, oh sorry. No, it's fine, it's <laughs> fine. Because I think it the language, the language is always confusing because for me a workshop is something that you come to and you you're doing. Mm. You know, whereas these are actual lectures that people come to. You come to a lecture and you're listening and learning. And you're exchanging ideas. So I see the format more as a seminar than a lecture. And yeah, then people go into breakout rooms online and they get an opportunity to network, which is literally my favourite, favourite part of each of the courses that we do. So I'm just going to say some of the courses that we have done. Um, So last year we had a course on Britain's Caribbean Artist Movement a course on curating Black art. And one of my absolutely favourite, favourite courses was um, Art and Revolutionary China. So they're like four-week courses um, and people get a reading list and we make our reading list super, super accessible. So there's read, watch and listen. So you can engage with all three of the materials or you can engage with the one that's easy for you to engage with. So being dyslexic you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) you don't you don't want to read like big text but you can listen to a podcast you possibly can watch something if you have time and then some people don't like to listen to things they want to read you know so um I've tried to so I call it the traffic light system of learning so just giving everyone an access point into the like deeper learning can you explain that a bit more what's so how does that work um, so it works by making sure that we're not reproducing the same sort of, I want to say limitations, but I don't know if that's right, but we're not reproducing the same sort of hierarchical structures or barriers. No, we're not reproducing the same sort of barriers to learning as like institutions. So I remember when I was in um, uni, all I had, most of the, everything on our reading list was 99% of the time reading There was no, go listen to a podcast, go watch this film, go and, you know, go and engage with it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the dyslexia support you have is like very much, okay, even though you've got a bunch of reading to do, we're going to give you a system where you can listen to it. But sometimes it isn't the same as well because transcribing a piece of text that's meant to be read is very different from a podcast that's, designed to be listened to Mm, absolutely so that's for me one of the biggest reasons why 
I make sure that all the lecturers are um, on all the classes have a different way to engage with more information about the topic than just reading, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's so easy to move forward without thinking of those things. So why does that matter to you? Because I find it really hard to digest texts. <laughs> okay. So um, I guess I was just... I, the whole thing with Black Blossom School of Art and Culture is creating an art school that I would have gone to and loved to go to and that would have enriched my life. And I guess it would just... You know, the whole school's about decolonizing and deconstructing and democratizing creative learning. So it wouldn't, it just wouldn't make sense to just have, go and read this chapter, go read this journal. It just doesn't go with the ethos of what the school is trying to do and create. And I think even moving forward, like having this conversation is making me think some of the things that we probably have put um, to people to read, it's probably too long anyway. So... It's just thinking about new ways that we can get people to engage with different knowledge mm. or knowledge, but given to us in a different way. Yeah, reading's important. I, I do like to read, but I know like how long it takes me to read a book. Right, <laughs> you okay. know, it takes a while. So, and then I read it over and over again. You're sounding very dyslexic. <laughs> Have you ever had a test? I, I've done... And I'm saying that because not just with the reading, but the way that your mind operates. And I'm seeing like the empathy that you have for humans, which is scientifically proven for people with dyslexia, that they've got higher empathy levels. And I can see like your mind works in a way that some people think I would love to create something that um, isn't out there and then they stop themselves because there's a million reasons why they can't do that but people with dyslexia go I want to create something oh yeah I can see it let's go do it yeah you know and and I I can kind of see these tendencies within you so yeah have you have you ever had a test I've had a dyslexia test they said I was a dyslexic but everyone I've worked with says I'm fucking dyslexic. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um my I've got a 12-year-old daughter, um, for some some of the listeners who don't know. And she actually reads my emails. And she like before I got Grammarly, which is a great app. Um, and I used to miss out letters, not letters, um, like words like the and just very, like, I type so quickly, I'd miss things. I don't think in, like, a very linear way, which I'm a visual person, so before I can even start to plan something, I have to see it visually. Like, I sometimes I draw. That sounds like a fun process. It does. <laughs> and, yeah, what's gorgeous about that is that even if on paper you're not dyslexic, there are, like there's a saying, some dyslexic tendencies or traits, but it shows that your approach to your methods or your way that you're kind of sculpting your offerings with the read, watch, listen, for example. It's just, you know, you're really thinking about the the audience. And that is one of the reasons actually why I wanted to talk to you as well, is that how do people approach um, working with neurodivergent people, even if you may not be yourself, but it sounds like you've got some 
empathy and experiences as as well and can kind of definitely like going to university of the arts london i think 43 percent of the students are dyslexic mm-hmm. um and like 60 percent of the staff is dyslexic so i think being in an environment anyway where most people have like access needs and learning needs it's just kind of been embedded in me that mm-hmm. um we need to we need to make sure what students are engaging in can be as fulfilling for their for their learning as possible. It feels as like institutions are starting to catch up, but I guess the thing the Black Blossom School of Art and Culture is so new that we don't need to catch up because we're just we can completely create something. And I will definitely say that I see areas where oh, this needs to be improved. So, for example, our lectures are not. Um, captions and we don't have a translator um so I feel like okay there's a a whole demographic of people with hearing problems that can't engage with the work so you know even though we might be doing some things great it's like okay how can we make it better and make it more accessible and I'm always like talking to the team about it and like how do we keep it like aesthetic aesthetic aesthetically clean and then add all of these different elements is it during the live lectures is it a thing where it's after the live lectures and then does that mean that um people with hearing is it impairments? Impairments, yeah. Hearing impairments, does that mean they don't get to engage with the live lectures? Does that mean that they're not getting a fulfilling experience? So it's all of these different things that I'm constantly thinking about. I'm just sat here looking at you in so much awe, like to take so much on and to be out there, like really making change that is meaningful and provides those opportunities. Like I am massively in awe of that ability that you have thank you i would say it's the gen z's though in it i don't want to get cancelled <laughs> <laughs> the gen z's keep you on your tiptoes so you know my daughter's like a young gen z and like extremely this is wrong and this is right <laughs> um and someone that's actually joining the team is a gen z and I can snow, but it's they, you know, they keep you on your toes and they're thinking about things that you're not necessarily thinking about. And I said this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on, I'm the year of the half, I'm half Gen Z, half millennial. Yeah. And there's so much great hype about Gen Z. So I'm like, oh yeah, no, I'm a Gen Z, definitely. Well, I think... <laughs> I missed that boat. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I'm a millennial, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think millennials are great. Yeah, I think that too. And yeah, <laughs> I think we've been totally fucked. Yeah. Like, we've lived through two economic crises. So, like, when we were 18, 19, first economic crisis, like, it's a very different... Like, the Gen Zs could never. <laughs> <laughs> They would have solved the problem, though, you know. (laughs) You know, they would have danced the problem away. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. They would have done a little, you know, TikTok. But I think there is going to be, because I think a lot of millennials saw the problems with society, but they didn't necessarily have the tools to, like, all the freedom, you know, when you're fighting just to get paid on time (laughs) and, like, Uh, find jobs that pay you what you're worth as well, Mm. it's very different. Like, our parents' generations, they were getting paid what they're worth. Gen Zs are now going into the workplace and getting paid really good rates. Millennials didn't have that. So, you know, 
It's exhausting. It's exhausting. A lot of us are exhausted, but we saw, a lot of us saw the problems that were wrong with society and we have laid the foundations. Like when you look at a lot of sort of social impact businesses, there was an explosion with our generation on businesses that wanted to make social impact. And I think we're going to keep on getting this trickle down effect and it's normal to have a social impact business now, you know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't normal for our parents' generation to have that. It was more like, okay, it's either for profit or it's for charity. But there was never like the blur in between, like how can we have a business that does good, that makes a profit? That was, it's, it's a new, it's, I want to say it's a new concept, but it is definitely a new way of working. And I think we're going to be seeing more and more businesses who are like solving societal problems whilst also making a profit because the staff within the team need to be paid. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, because you said earlier about at the beginning you weren't kind of comfortable with taking money from it from the work that you were kind of curating. But we need to live, yeah. you know? And I, I think that's something that we have also had to come to terms with in Move Beyond Words is... You know, we dived into all our different projects and we were kind of, you know, taking a wage from that. But, you know, we're looking at ways that we can create products now. And, um, yeah, it it takes a minute to just give yourself the justification. I have a huge problem with money, like, and how we talk about it and... Mm. You know, it's a conversation that makes me feel very uncomfortable when it comes down to like, okay, the finance part. Because people expect you to do it in a charitable way and they're expecting like your fee to be a bit lower because, you know, you're trying to get the good word out there. Um, And it's been like a really like, it's been an internal process, like slowly letting go of old ideas of, what my work is and placing value on it. Um, and can you do that? Can you now place the value of of what your work means and what it's providing? Like, yeah, can, I guess. And as you, as an individual, yeah, like the value of you. Yeah, I'm. You know, it's a it's a it's a it's a long process. Um, it it's something that I just you just have to. You know, it's like you have to breathe and go, okay, how much is my rent? (laughs) (laughs) How much is this? How much is that? Okay, this is how much I actually need. And then it's like, okay, I actually can't do all of this work by myself. I need to put an extra 40% in it on the budget or something. Um, And I just think it's allowing, it's allowing yourself to, I don't know. It's allowing yourself to be comfortable in making money for yourself. Because when you're making, when you're working for a business or a company, you don't, you know that you want to get paid from it. So you, you're going to work every day to get paid and you're very happy to accept that paycheck. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if there's like an internal shame or guilt that when you're working for yourself, I don't know. I don't actually know what it is. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. And not, yeah, I mean, we could go on and on about this because <laughs> yeah. we, you know, we were having a conversation the other day about this. It's and and like, what is your value? But I guess I, when I ask that question, I think I'm thinking more not monetary value, but the value of who you are as a person mm. and and um, 
yeah, do you just take a minute sometimes and go, oh yeah, I'm fucking great and I'm doing really great things. Yeah. And do you take those moments? Yes, I know. <laughs> yes, I know. Like, because you should. You should. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah thank you. Um, yes, I know. Like, I go through phases, like everyone. Like, some days I feel like, yeah, I'm that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's some days where I feel like, oh, I need to I'm be doing bitch. more. Yeah, I'm a sad <laughs> bitch today. <laughs> but um, there's days where, like, I just feel like, oh, I just need to be working harder. I, I know I'm not lit. I, I feel like I'm not meeting my full potential. So I look at, um, for example, I have a huge girl crush on Sharmadine Reed, who is the founder of Warnells, which was, like, one of the first... Um, I don't, yeah, it's one of the first nail bars that done acrylic nails with designs um, that was like, had a retro vibe. So it used to be at Topshop. Then she had a um, space in Soho. And now she's gone on to found the Stack World, which is like a membership forum for women. But seeing how Sharmadine Reed puts herself out there yeah. as a business person, as a feminist, as a mother, as a consultant, I just find it truly like, I don't know. I just feel like, wow, this is someone who really believes in their work, their voice, and I don't have the same conviction. And I don't necessarily know why. Like, I just feel like, oh, okay. And I see, I see, it's not just Sharmini Media. Well, we see their conviction. Thank you. <laughs> but I see so many like amazing women who are like, constantly talking about their work talking about things it's that are wrong with society yeah. and I just sometimes feel like but if I'd done that no one would care <laughs> but also it's a thing of you know we have it with dyslexia like I feel like you know am I going on about it too much are people bored of me talking about this but you know I do always have to come back to like why I, why I'm doing this and why my voice matters but it's hard yeah. it's really hard and you putting yourself put your, out there like yeah. yeah you have to put yourself a million percent out of your comfort zone just yeah to I think get that's one person you know on board and yeah. encouraged to but every time you do put yourself out of your comfort zone it's amazing what comes back but it's just so difficult because by this, before you even get to put yourself out of your comfort zone, you've probably overthinked it to the point where it doesn't feel natural mm. anymore. So, yeah, I'm constantly trying to, like, learn myself and just do better. Oh, OK, I can tell you what's really difficult is actually managing the admin. I just never thought... I never thought about having 200 people sign up to a course and then a quarter of their messaging you or half of their messaging emailing you and having to deal with that. And, you know, there's also this customer service element. But, like, sometimes I can't get out of my own head to send an email. I find it actually really... That's one thing I find really difficult, actually, is just emails in general. And I think... This could make me cry. <laughs> I think um, people sometimes feel like I'm ignoring them through email, but I actually find it really hard to communicate via emails. Like, I just find the whole process daunting, and I do not know why, because I love talking, I love communicating. But there's something about opening my email inbox and just feeling totally overwhelmed all the time. And, 
Like when I do send a good email, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a really good email, but I can't actually do it in the Gmail app. So I have to write it on like Google Docs, um, then put it into Grammarly and then send it. So like the whole process of sending an email can be really long. And sometimes I have really like, not I want to say sophisticated emails, but sometimes I have really detailed emails that I have to send. Um, I think the best thing, like I found that when I had working with an assistant to do my emails, I could tell them what I wanted to say. They would draft it, then I'd look over it, I'd take things out. But when I'm dealing with my own inboxes, I just, and it, and I kind of feel that it kind of came. It never used to be like that. I used to work in a law library when I was a student. Um, I was a customer service librarian. Um, and my manager at the time, she like loved me. She was like, she didn't want me to leave. She was like, I'll put you on more training. She was like, your emails are so fantastic, the way you communicate with students. So I know there was a time where it was just like, normal to send an email but something happened I don't know if it's because I was sending emails with mistakes and I got picked up on it and then I started to I don't know but something definitely happened where I just got to the point where I found sending emails really really difficult so I have to psych myself up like today when I leave I know I'm gonna go and just spend the whole day doing emails and that once that's done, it's done. But then when people start to respond, it's going to take me like another like, I don't know, say day to like get the mental courage again to go back into it. I just find, yeah, I find the whole process just so daunting. And we live in a world, at the end of the day, there's nothing that we can do about that because you have to communicate by writing. <laughs> if- <laughs> Thanks for joining us on this episode of Move Beyond Words podcast. For more information about this episode, please check out the links in the show notes or visit our website at movebeyondwords.co.uk. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. From as little as a pound, the price of seven bananas from Tesco's, you can join our network on Instagram, enjoy access to behind the scenes content and receive a Move Beyond Words welcome pack. To become a patron, please head over to patreon.com slash movebeyondwords or follow the link in the show notes. This podcast was produced by the Move Beyond Words team, Elizabeth Arifium, myself, Charlotte Edmonds, and Chris Bristow. It was recorded in Serendipity Studios London with graphic design by Alex Colhan and sound design and music by Chris Bristow and Tom Parker. <laughs>